Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. In a biblical portrayal in Genesis, humans are the cause of death. Now some read this as sort of absolute, that all forms of death are caused by humans. Others read Genesis to say that it's human death and not the death of microorganisms or of animals. But death plays a peculiar role for humans in a twofold sense. And that is that we're the only creatures that are fully aware of death. That death also follows wherever humans go, it follows in our wake. So however we read Genesis, it's clear people are deadly. We're deadly for other creatures and for ourselves. The death of the planet, you know, occurring in global warming is clearly caused by humans. But one understanding of the history of the planet, and it's an understanding that's recently developed, is that extinctions have followed the arrival of humans for the entire history of the planet. And so the disappearance of the African megafauna appears have to have coincided with the switch of humans eating meat. The great extent and pattern of extinction. Wherever humans appeared, there were extinctions. And so humankind erased a world of wonders. Even the way that we think the weather works, even the way the biosphere functions. Modern humans arrived, for example, in Europe, in Australia, maybe 40, 50,000 years ago with, this, with very similar consequences. And so in Europe, the extinctions happened slowly, maybe 10, 15,000 years. The continent lost its tusked elephants, its forest rhinos, its hippos, its hyenas, its scimitar cats. In Australia, where we think no homonym had set foot before modern humans, the collapse is almost immediate. The rhinoceros-sized wombat, the 10-foot kangaroo, the marsupial lion, the monitor lizard, they say it was larger than a Nile crocodile, the giant marsupial taper, the horned tortoise, they say was as big as a car. In ecological terms, they disappeared overnight. Human arrival, at least in the fossil record, indicates that that was the cause of mammal extinctions. In the Amazon and other regions, large herbivores move nutrients from soil to soil and change the growth of the, the plant life. And so one theory suggests that the eradication of these large mammals caused a loss of atmospheric methane that's generated in their guts and that it could have in fact triggered the short ice age that began about 12,800 years ago. And still we have not stopped. Poaching has reduced the population of African forest elephants by 60% since the year 2000. The range of the Asian elephant, which once lived from Turkey to the coast of China, has been reduced by 97%. And it's elephants that distribute the seeds of hundreds of rainforest species 
and without them these trees are functionally extinct. So humans are not just deadly for the planet, we see that, they're deadly for their fellow creatures, but of course they're deadly for themselves. Of the past 3,400 years, humans have been at war for most of that time, except for 268 years. Maybe 8% of recorded history had no war. All the rest, it's been wars and rumors of wars, as the Bible says. Even in the 20th century, 108 million people were killed in wars. We have estimates of world history that maybe as many as a billion people have been slaughtered in war. 400,000 die by homicide each year, and it is, in some countries, one of the leading causes of death. This violence is worse than war. And then suicide, about one person in 5,000, 15,000 die by suicide. In 2017, just in the United States, there were nearly 50,000 recorded suicides. The Old Testament prophets and Psalms echo the refrain, How long, God? And then they join this to a wide-ranging summation of evil, as in, how long must we suffer violence? How long must we suffer injustice? How long must we suffer oppression? How long before you rescue us? The psalmist says in Psalm 13. This is accentuated as we lead up to the birth of Christ in Advent. A world census is being taken and there's a megalomaniac on the throne. And this causes Joseph and Mary to have to go to Bethlehem. We know that with Jesus' birth, Herod is going to slaughter the infants. We really don't know how many children that would involve. But he was told that a king would arise from Bethlehem, and he didn't want any competition. And so he just wiped out the infants of the town. It only gets worse from there. The darkness is not banished, but it seems to deepen. After all, they're going to kill God incarnate. And so it's not a process, even though that's completed in the New Testament. The battle, the darkness, continues in the church. And the way that I think we can read history is that especially with the coming of Christ, there is an ever-heightened confrontation being worked out historically. The dark night prior to the coming of the light, which is characteristic of Advent. That's why we always sing about the light. Then we have the candles. It calls for describing then the full depth of the darkness and recognizing that there is a light that cannot be snuffed out. But the presumption is that the battle continues in the church not that the revelation continues, but the revelation of Christ penetrates the apprehension of the darkness. That is that we can understand it and begin to dispel it and even better understand the nature of God. And so there's an exposure, not just simply of the genesis of evil, of subjective evil, but the anatomy of madness that grips the world. And the presumption is that the two things are the same. That is, that subjective evil and the world being gripped by evil are the same thing. And that we're gaining peace only as we apprehend, you know, that Christ is dispelling this darkness. 
And that the two are on the same order. That is, the darkness of the world, the darkness of the human heart are the same thing. That it would always use violence to gain peace. It would avoid death by killing. You know, we've got to kill our enemies so they won't kill us. It will throw off suffering by inflicting it on others. We have to keep those bad people away so they won't deplete our economy and make us suffer. We might describe the work as a kind of mad individual or of a world gone mad. There's actually the acronym. Do you know what MAD stands for? Mutually Assured Destruction of Nuclear War. It's sort of illustrative of the madness of the world that we live in. I don't know if you remember Daniel Ellsberg. He published the Pentagon Papers that were describing the deception of the United States government in the Vietnam War. But part of the papers that he also stole from the Pentagon was what is called the nuclear war plans. In the papers, the Pentagon estimates the numbers of death. Ellsberg describes, he ran across a document that read, top secret for the president's eyes only. And the document posed the question to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, how many people would be killed in the Soviet Union and China, just those two countries, in a nuclear first strike by the United States? It was estimated that at least 275 million people would die instantaneously. After six months, there would be another 325 million deaths. As the wind blew the radiation, 100 million deaths would occur in Warsaw Pact countries. Probably another 100 million dead in Western Europe. The total casualties would be at least 600 million dead, and that's just the U.S. missiles. You know, it doesn't take in the counterstrikes and those that would probably inevitably die in North America. Ellsberg writes about his shock when he saw this paper. He says, I remember what I thought when I first held the single sheet with the graph on it. I thought this sheet of paper should not exist. It should never have existed, not in America, not anywhere ever. It depicted evil beyond any human project ever. There should be nothing on earth, nothing real that it referred to. And so he says it was just incomprehensible in its evil and in its madness. The destruction was so large scale, the scope is beyond our ability to, to even think about. Those plans that Ellsberg discovered are still the basic plans that are in place. The basic strategy is for a first strike which would eliminate enemy cities and targets before the U.S. targets are struck. And then to ensure that there is the possibility of retaliation, there is what is called the dead hand strategy. That is, we often think, oh, the president's the only one that can do this. But actually there's a series of people in the chain of command that can push the button. It's been estimated that if you take into account China, Russia, and all those countries that have nuclear weapons, there's probably over a thousand people that could push the button and start the cataclysm that would destroy maybe the whole earth, but certainly at least a third of the population on the earth. And this means there's ample opportunity for mistakes or false alarms which have occurred. There's probably been over a hundred 
potential mistakes. One of the interesting ones, when we, you know, we all know about the Cuba Missile Crisis. The one that you may not know was that Stanislav Petrov was a Russian army officer and he was working the night shift of September 26th in 1983. And he really saved the world from nuclear war because of his decision. He was a lieutenant in the Soviet Union's air defense forces and he's monitoring the country's satellites looking for weapons launched by the United States. This was right after the Korean airliner had been shot down by the Russians. And so there was a kind of high alert. And the alarm went off that the United States had sent nuclear weapons against Soviet Russia. Petrov was supposed to sound the alarm, but he didn't move. He says, I just sat there for a few seconds staring at the big backlit red screen with the word launch on it. He was supposed to press the button. Petrov remembered that the USSR shot down that commercial airliner and there were these heightened tensions and it made his decision even harder. There was no rule about how long we were allowed to think, he says, before we reported a strike. And we knew that every second of procrastination took away valuable time because then we wouldn't be able to launch all of our weapons. And so all I had to do was reach for the phone raise the direct line on our top commanders, but he says, I couldn't move. He says, I felt like I was sitting on a hot frying pan. Now Petrov is a little unusual. He says, I was the only person who had received a civilian education on his team of officers. He says, all of the other people were professional soldiers and they were taught to give and obey orders. He believes if someone else had been on his shift, the alarm would have been raised and we would have had World War III. The end of the story is he didn't push the button. And they found out, oh, it was actually just the sun hitting some clouds that had set off the nuclear alarm. Ellsberg warns that the threat of nuclear holocaust has increased since the end of the Cold War. Because the use of nuclear weapons has in fact increased, and what he means by use, you know, if somebody goes into a store and holds up the store and they have a gun, the crazier that they appear, the more likely the robbery is to succeed. Because the people will think, oh, this guy's crazy enough, he'll just shoot us all. There's actually a theory, it's called the madman theory. The crazier the guy with his, you know, appears with his finger on the button, the greater the perceived threat and the more negotiating power that we have. And so during the Korean War, Truman, Eisenhower, they both threatened to drop nukes on the Chinese in order to get them to negotiate. He lists some 25 incidents in just the Cold War period in which they used nuclear weapons as a threat. There is a record of a conversation. Nixon was recording all of his conversations. And the conversation goes like this. This is April 25th, 1972. And they're talking about the war in Vietnam. Nixon says, I still think we ought to take the dikes out now. Will that drown people? Kissinger says, that'll kill about 200,000 people. Nixon says, no, no, no. I'd rather use the nuclear bomb. Have you got that, Henry? Kissinger says, well, I think that would just be too much. Nixon says, the nuclear bomb, does that bother you? I just want you to think big, Henry. 
Bush and Obama both threatened nuclear war on Iran several times. In fact, it's a requirement almost. You really can't run for the Oval Office, and it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, unless you have a demonstrated willingness to use nuclear weapons. And of course, we know that President Trump has followed in this line. He has said on the floor of the United Nations General Assembly, the United States has great strength and patience, but if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself. And of course, he threatened to unleash fire and fury when North Korea launched missiles over Japan. Trump's tweets, you know, are just kind of a public version of what has been required of every American president in the nuclear age. Only potential madmen need apply to the presidency. One must be willing to consider not simply homicide, this is Ellsberg, or genocide, but there's a new word, omnicide. That is, you have to be willing to consider destroying all human life, the destruction of the human species. My point, humans are deadly. They're deadly to themselves and everything around them. And given the logic that peace requires violence and that life requires the weapons of death, I believe this is the logic that Christ came to save us from. I believe we operate in this kind of mutually assured destruction, not simply globally, but individually. It's the logic at work in tribal and national wars. I think it's the logic at work in human society. Death as the means to life, it describes a form of religion based on human sacrifice in which the scapegoat is sacrificed. The outsider is the scapegoat. Religion that pictures death as a doorway. Oh, death is not a bad thing. It's a release. Or it might describe the masochistic individual who would rid himself of himself so that he can get rid of his own pain. This is called the death drive. I believe it's this drive which Christ exposed himself to in his life, his death, and resurrection. His formula for undoing this logic is that he who would save his life will lose it. This is because the mode of salvation is life-destroying. The way in which we would save ourselves may in fact very likely destroy all of us. Whether it's the accumulation of security through wealth, through religious righteousness, through chariots, horses, weapons, or through manipulation of the gods, life is destroyed by human salvation system. He who would save his life will lose it because people are violent, idol makers. Paul says they're hostile toward God and they're uncomprehending. And in their incomprehension, they would destroy themselves and the world. And the revelation of Christ, it's not about God that's angry. Our fear should be not of a loving God, but of human destructiveness. It's about the human predicament, the exposure of the destructive nature of this logic. Christ comes to solve the problem 
and he gives us a surprising diagnosis to the problem. Humans are the problem. And even the human solutions to the problem are the problem. He who would save himself is in the process of destroying himself. And unless he gives up on this mode of saving his life, he destroys it. Certainly this includes war. To destroy evil, we multiply evil. It includes religion. It includes treatment of the neighbor. If the problem is thus, then the solution will be within us, in the most minute and the most global way. Individual sickness, social disease, national disease, world disease, all consist, I believe, of the same human problem, and they require the same cure. The incarnation of Christ is required because the sickness is within the human condition. And Christ then enacts a cure. Christ gives us a diagnosis of the problem that says we're the problem and he gives us a cure that discloses the nature of sin as duplicitous and violent. And so in a strange way we can also make Christianity a mutually assured destruction. It can also then picture God as if the problem is within God. We project our own struggle onto God, you know, that God's angry and the destruction of Christ means he is not. And now God is able to love us because of the violence that he unleashed on Christ. This seems to take the logic of sin and apply it to God. And in this deplorable theory, the primary message is that violence and evil, that same violence and evil that would destroy the world, is grounded in God. And in turn, the apocalyptic destruction of the world recorded in Scripture, it's presumed to be the work of God. But that's not what it says. Rather, as Scripture portrays it, it is the culmination of the work of humans. Let me read a passage. And now, brethren, I know this is the first Christian sermon. I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. You've just killed God. Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. And this is what God spoke through his holy prophets. Jesus' work, this is part of Advent, we look forward to Christmas, but we also look forward to the second coming, in which there will be a universal restoration. It won't be for destruction that he comes, nor even primarily for judgment, though judgment is not absent in verse 23. But this passage indicates that creator order is not going to be destroyed. It says, Peter says, it will be restored. Ephesians 1, 9 to 10. He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him things in heaven and things on earth. The plan of God is to gather up all things unto Christ. And this gathering up is the opposite of what sin and death do. 
in its fragmenting and dividing and destroying creation. Sin creates chaos. God's salvation brings order and peace, not destruction. A restored, united creation is the inheritance of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 19-20 In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. What do we need? Peace, reconciliation, the bringing of things together by removing that which alienates. That's what Christ has done. This reconciliation is cosmic and it includes heaven and the earth. For the creation waits with eager longing Romans 8, 19. For the revealing of the children of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to destruction and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning and labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for adoption. Notice the two critical aspects of salvation. The freedom that the entire creation awaits as participation in the glory of God's children and the material blessing of redeemed bodies. The personification of creation stresses the concern of God for the world, for the material world, and is concerned that humanity care for it properly. This is the way the book of Revelation, the New Testament, closes. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The book of Revelation ends with a picture of a renewed creation. The final state is not an immaterial heaven, but heaven comes to earth. It is a home here on earth. Notice that the New Jerusalem, it comes down from heaven in order for God's people to be able to inhabit it. And so the gospel message, as we see it preached in Acts and in the epistles, there is no notion of the cross saving us from hell or from God. We are saved from human destruction, from sin, death, and the devil, from the principalities and powers that would destroy everything. God is not like Caiaphas, in need of a scapegoat requiring one man to die that the nation would be saved. God is not like Pilate, Anselm, Luther, Calvin, requiring an execution to satisfy justice. God does not follow human logic, which is bent on violence and world destruction to save. The perspective of the New Testament, it does not brush aside human suffering, violence, and evil, but it presumes this is the painful problem creating Advent. Why is Advent so lamentable? 
because there is the pain of suffering awaiting God to come and save us. Advent tells us what to expect with the coming of the Messiah. Christ has come to expose and solve the problem. And we are part of the problem. And we're part of the solution, right? Christ will defeat sin, death, and the devil and rescue from mutually assured destruction. But this is the prolonged work which continues after Christmas, after Easter. The messianic salvation breaks into the midst of human madness, not to resolve it from a position above, but to cure it from within in the unfolding of healing sanity through the continued incarnate work of the church. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.